My name is Jeremy Collins, and welcome to Pastor Talk Radio. If you have a Jesus who has a wonderful earthly ministry and who dies in the atoning death but stays in the grave, you don't have the gospel. I'm a pastor who has honest conversations with other pastors to take a deeper look at matters of worship and faith, all while exploring who God is and how he works in our lives. Make sure you stick around to the end where we're going to answer your questions. This is Pastor Talk Radio. People think that there's another gospel. They think they can improve upon the gospel. They think they can edit the gospel. They think that they can change the gospel and move to another gospel, but there is no other gospel. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about church vitality, transitional ministry, monastic practices, and so much more. Guys, I am so excited for you to meet the pastor we have brought on today to Pastor Talk Radio. My name is Jeremy Collins. Welcome if this is your first time. Don't forget to do all the stuffs. Hit that like button. If you're listening on a podcast platform, please consider leaving us a rating. We're going to hop right into our conversation today. I am excited for this. This is uh, someone who I've known not for a super long amount of time, but have been gracious has been gracious enough to come on the podcast and I've been super encouraged particularly by his questions he puts forward during presbytery meetings. Mark is one of those guys who's willing to always speak his mind and I'm excited for that. So the the first thing right out the gate that I wanted to chat about and we're going to I'm going to clip this out later so if you're watching later in the podcast you'll see this as a clip. But I want to start with this because oftentimes people look at the church today and see a decline in the church. They see churches shrinking. They see church attendance going down. And so a big topic of conversation often is how do we make our churches vital again? What does vitality look like? And I know because I've done my homework and we've talked that you're doing some studies on church vitality. You're spending some time in a doctorate program. So Mark, Share with us some of the things that you might have learned about what makes a vital church and things that might cause a church to lose vitality, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the simplest things is simply how are we doing at the Great Commission? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I find it interesting that, you know, it, so many people in the church will talk about like the decline of Christianity in the U.S. And yet, as we do that, we can forget that Christianity is thriving probably greater than it ever has in the history of Christianity. Except maybe the Gospel of Acts when you go from 10 to thousands and thousands and a few chapters. But outside of that, um, so Christianity is thriving around the world. In fact, I read a great book called The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins. And he was saying how, for example, I think it's the... um, the, the Episcopal or the Anglican Church? I, I get those two confused. Anyways, um, the official church in England, which is the official church of England, hmm. has more converts, more members in, I believe it's Nigeria, than in England. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, and, and we, we see that too when talking about the EPC and we talk about our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in South America. And we don't necessarily think about that, but you're right. I think to take a global perspective can be more encouraging. However, that still doesn't change the fact of what we see in the, in locally in the U S. Um, so, so as looking at that, what would you say makes up a vital church? You've mentioned about the great commission. What are some other things that would play into that when either someone's looking for a church or looking to help make their church thriving again yeah and so i I appreciate that one of the uh the church kind of vitality experts that's out there um can can sort of split it up into two different things one thing being spiritual renewal and the other one being a strategic initiative and so the idea is that if you go too much in either of these directions Hmm. you won't be vital because obviously if you go the strategic initiative route well then suddenly we're just a bunch of organizational leaders trying to get a whole bunch of people in the door. And a lot of times that's either to keep survival or, uh, you know, to have some good numbers. But then on the other hand, if you go too far the other side of things and you go too far the spiritual renewal route, 
and forget about strategic initiative, well, that just turns into a, a glorified Bible study where we all become biblical encyclopedias and we might have a communion with Christ, but suddenly as a church, it's like, oh yeah, we should probably also do the Great Commission as well. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation I had last time with Sean Brubaker about evangelism and mm-hmm. how the congregation should be all together in that it's not a even a personal thing. It's a congregational thing, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is helpful. Yeah, in, in my estimation too, I think oftentimes we associate vitality with youth, not with like the practice of evangelism and missional thinking. And oftentimes, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I think I've gained more wisdom and knowledge the older I get that maybe youth isn't always the best depictor of vitality. And so I think some people will look at churches and think, if we get younger, we become more vital. And I ha, have you seen that to be the case? Would you push back against that model of younger equals vital? Well, no, but I can certainly see why people would say that. And there's probably a lot of times when that is um, needing to reach out to youth is what they would need to do. Because if we look at the landscape of Christianity today, I mean, the um, generationally, you'll see that there's a gradual decline going from the greatest generation of the Great Depression in World War II to today's Generation Z. And so whereas youth doesn't equate to vitality, oftentimes what is missing from a church is that youngest generation simply because of how we see generational dynamics in terms of faith. Yeah, so it might be a marker of you're missing the Great Commission but it also may not just because you have young people there mean you're hitting the Great Commission marker, right? It, it, <laughs> it, it, it might be something as simple as you're the church that, that people came to for other reasons. And I, and I think that that's helpful. So when we're thinking about um, youth and reaching that next generation, I did want to ask you this because, again, most of the folks listening, whether either if they're from Cup or from Middle Sandy, they might know you. And outside <laughs> of that, they may not know you. So here's my first question I want to ask in regards to just your own personal life is how did you end up as a pastor? Cause when I look at your Facebook profile and I see that you studied business at Akron general education at Stark state, and then you ended up at seminary. I don't necessarily see a, a common thread in your education that would lead you to seminary and now pursuing a doctorate in church vitality. Yeah. So if you'd asked me about 15 years ago, what I was going to do, my goal was actually to go into business and then run for political office one day. Mm. And God in his uh, sovereign ways, he uh, slowly over time was was working on me really. In fact, I, I think back to the church that I would ultimately attend um, during uh, my, my time at seminary, which speaking of church vitality quite appropriately closed actually about three years ago now. Mm. It's yeah, sad, but also reminder of reality of um what christianity can look like these days anyway so while i was at that church the pastor that was there at the time approached me because i was becoming more and more involved um got on session was leading in various areas within the church and he said that he thought he might see a a call to ministry for me and given i already had my own plans or thought i knew what god wanted me to do with my life I, I didn't say no just out of kindness, just out of kind of respect for the man. Hmm. And so um, time moved on and I just saw the right doors opening up and saw God closing other doors. So that uh, in in looking for uh, for what God had next for me, he just simply made it clear. So I ended up at seminary and then uh, years and years down the road, ended up at an airport meeting a guy in my presbytery that I'd Never met before. (laughs) Yeah. And you watched me freak out as I lost my boarding pass and had to go get a new one. And I asked (laughs) you to watch my bags. Yeah, that was we're on our way back from Orlando, uh, where our uh, EPC national office is. You were there for the transitional pastors, right? Oh, small church. Mm -hmm. You were there for small church. I was there for next gen and we're both doing a little dive into those categories. Yeah, it was fun. I, I, I do this often and it embarrasses my family where I think I recognize people 
And I've gone way past caring whether or not I embarrass myself in public. And so I will oftentimes call out names of people I think I know. And <laughs> I know. And, and not be, yeah. Yeah, you experienced it, but it ended up at least working out. So yeah, we connected up. Um, and and again, as I said, I, I knew you a little bit because I observe and I've been to presbytery meetings. And for those who don't understand, a presbytery is a geographical f- set of EPC churches or churches in our presbytery that all meet together. Uh, what? How many do we have a year? Six, five, four, four, four meetings in the... Yeah, yeah, that's it. So we meet four times a year to do the business of the church. Sometimes that's care. Sometimes that's to bring in uh, people who are going to become elders and teaching elders. If you want to know more about that, I have a, a video on my channel that I walk through what Presbytery does. If you're that interested in Presbyterian polity, which might be all one of you watching, um, <laughs> that that would be interested in that. So when we're we're talking about, though, you ended up in a different role than I think most people would recognize or even have an understanding that pastors do. We all understand that transitions in life are usually hard. Whenever anything transitions for us, whether it's transition from being married or unmarried to married, whether it be transitioning from college to real world life, whether it be transitioning to the loss of a loved one who no longer is there. It's the same in churches when transitions happen. That's usually the most difficult times for churches. And you're what we know and we, we call in the EPC as a transitional pastor. So, so Mark, what the heck is a transitional pastor and why are you doing that type of ministry? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Sometimes I ask me that question too. <laughs> However, um, and I think there's more than one reason actually uh, hmm. for that. Um, so yeah, we were talking a little bit about the church vitality side of it, but but I think on a much more simpler level, churches in transition, um, for example, the one I'm at now, there was a pastor that was here for 19 years. Hmm. And you can just think of the the stability that this church had because of that. You can think of the relationships that were built over time. And so when you have someone that there's those relationships within the church, there's that that way of doing things, there's that um, constancy of one person over 19 years that are leading the church that is ministering, um, you know, burying uh, loved ones of theirs. There's that that time after he leaves in which there's anxiety, you know, there's uncertainty, there's questions about what is next, you know, who will be the next pastor? Um, what will ministry look like? How long will it take us to get to that next pastor? And so I get the true privilege of going to a church and providing them some stability within that interim process, um, but also getting the chance to really care for them as they navigate what is next for their church and what should be next. And I think the easiest way to say it, or most important way to say it, is probably where is God calling them now? Mm. And the the obvious way that that could be meant would be who are they who are they going to call as their next pastor? Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. And that's something that I really appreciate about the way the EPC has done it is that we don't put the cart before the horse. You know, we don't call the pastor and then suddenly it gets to be his mess <laughs> that he's walking into. Instead, we get to slow down that process of moving into the next pastor and simply taking a deep dive into this particular church. I mean, there's so many differences in terms of the churches across the country. And so who are we today as a church? You could even say, how are we different from where we were 19 years ago when the last Mm -hmm. pastor was called here? Who are we today? Where are we called to minister? What does our community look like? And on the basis of that, who are we being called to reach and how do we do that? And through that process, then we go to the process of looking for the next permanent pastor, which is the who, who was called to lead us there and to bring us into the next phase of ministry for our church. Yeah. And, and that's something that I've greatly appreciated what you just described about the EPC and its deep desire for healthy churches, not just to put pastors in positions to fail. And you can see how transitional ministry will help churches ask questions 
that if you are just hired as a new pastor somewhere, you might not be okay asking as you show up, but yet, you know, as the transitional pastor, I can ask these questions because that's my job to come in here and play that role of letting them defend everything. Um, We went through a process recently in our own church where we looked at children and youth ministry and we brought in an outside consultant because we knew we were too close to look at everything. And when we came to some of those final conclusions about what we wanted to do, his last job was to push back to make sure we could defend who we thought we were and where we were going before we move forward. And I think transitional ministry does a lot of that too. Whereas you're working with those elders, you're working with the the session and the congregation. If they don't know who they are, how in the world could, how, how could they tell someone else who's coming to be their pastor, who they are? Right. So, yeah. And if I could jump in there, I think one of the beauties of the process that they've put together in the APC is that a lot of times, um, for example, I remember there was a church consultant that um, was speaking at something I was at, I forget what, and these consultants would put together this report of what they've learned about this church, what they think the opportunities are for this church to uh, to improve and you know mm-hmm. to move forward. And so often, as soon as the church consultant will present the report, the response back is, you don't really know us. You know, you're an outsider. Yeah. You haven't really been here for long. And so in a way, the, the way the EPC does transitional pastoring is that it brings in both at once so that on the one hand, it is that outside perspective that they need that is helpful, um, that is also very much trained um, by people mm-hmm that understand vital churches. But on the other hand, you're not as much an outsider because, well, you're working full-time at the church. And so you're getting to know people, you're building relationships, you're having conversations, you are going to, you know, their hospital bedside, um, those kinds of things. So that it's, in a way, it's the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. Well, and, and from a polity standpoint and a biblical standpoint, they're under the authority of an elder who's submitted to the authority of scripture. And I think that's a different process than bringing in a consultant uh, versus bringing in an elder to lead that process in a, in a desire to get them to what's best. And I think that that's, yeah, that that's what's something that I think is helpful for folks to realize is the only way that we're going to get to vital churches is to make big sometimes big, sometimes little, but to make changes. Mm -hmm. And if you think about our own life, uh, I usually don't make a change in my life until I have to, (laughs) or, (laughs) or until someone tells me I have to, I, it's harder to do it voluntarily. Yeah. What's that old saying about change only happens when the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember a conversation, uh, it has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, but I was watching the Joe Rogan podcast when he was talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson and they were asking questions about why aren't we yet, uh, using the seawater to make fresh water. Can't, can't we do that? He's like, Oh, we can do that, but that's never going to happen until the cost of that matches the cost of what it takes. It's cheaper to bottle water at Fiji and ship it around the world than it is to take water in the ocean and desalinate it to where it can be drinkable. And I think that's a, an apt description of ourselves and change. We'd rather hike up the mountain to Fiji because it's actually still easier in our own minds than it is to, to use what's right in front of us. But so interesting, interesting thought here. I didn't know this until we started talking that you have spent a lot of time studying monastic practices and I would love to hear some of your thoughts regarding magnats. I can't even say it. Monastic practices in the church today, and how how does that play a role in discipleship and spirituality in our, our relationship with God? Yeah, boy, there's a lot to that question. And, um, yeah, there is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would say one of the um, the things that really stands out to me about monastic practice is that it is countercultural. I mean, culture naturally seems to just encourage us to always be on, always going, always doing something. I mean, 
And even when we are going from one thing to another, well, we have our earbuds in and we're listening to podcasts or music or something else, or we have our cell phone on. So it's that always on, always, always going life. And so because of that, I see monastic practice as ways to push back from that cultural influence hmm. of constant distraction and constantly being on and constantly having people in our ear and constantly doing things. Uh, so the, the monastic view of things like contemplation and reflection are things that, that have us step back and really think through um, who we are, think through who God is, think through what God is teaching us um, in his word. And another one would also be when we think of something called the, uh, the divine office, which is something that monastics tend to do multiple times a day. In fact, I have a, a couple of Trappist monk friends who currently they pray, um, they stop for prayer as a community. I think it's six times a day. They just removed one actually. It used to be seven times a day. And I guess years and years ago, it used to be eight times a day. And what that says to me is in, in one sense, that's intentionality. That is saying that the, uh, as the saying from the rule of St. Benedict would say, let nothing come before the work of God. And his definition of the work of God would simply be prayer. And so intentionally pausing throughout the day in order to pray, in order to hear from the scriptures. And yet, you know, from a much simpler standpoint, ways that we can take that as those who aren't cloistered or those who aren't monastics, how is God playing into our lives throughout the day? even if we're not intentionally pausing multiple times throughout the day, are we in communion with God throughout the day? Yeah. So in that regard, um, are, are those who are practicing these monastic spiritual practices, uh, better Christians than, than those that, that never unplug their cell phone and are only listening to uh, pastor talk radio on loop 24 seven. I think that's a great question because it's easy to view people that leave everything as the, the spiritual superstars. Mm -hmm. You know, they're almost always in the monastery. They are gathering for prayer six, seven, eight times a day. You know, they're the real Christians. They're the real superstars. In fact, um, there's a, a group of people that are known as the Desert Fathers. And in the, um, I believe it was during the decline of the Roman Empire that certain Christians would go out to the desert, which is why they became known as the Desert Fathers. Although there were actually some sisters in there. So normally they're called Desert Fathers, but it went both ways. Anyway, so they went out to the desert to try to get away from people and to just be one-on-one -on -one with God. And what they found was, was that other people were interested in this too. They would start to lift them up as, as these super Christians, as people that would have, have wisdom. And, and they were very wise. But as you get to read their writings and learn about how they viewed God, but also how they viewed themselves, whereas we would lift a monastic up potentially as the, the super Christian, you know, that left everything to go to the cloister, that decided not to get married and to just say celibate their entire life. Well, that's not how they viewed themselves. They viewed themselves as, as sinners, as depraved, as those needing God. And so what you found was, is they would have a deep understanding of their own sinfulness and their need for God. And you know, as, as I'm sharing that, I do wonder at times if in the church, if uh, lay people might do that to mm -hmm. the elders, whether it be teaching elders or ruling elders. You know, the um, I remember uh, Todd Balsinger once talked about, why did you go into ministry? He was talking to some pastors. And uh, he said that, you know, for some people, it almost seemed like they loved their faith so much that uh, the person decided to go pro. Yeah. It, and the professionalization of ministry, I think, has done more damage to the priesthood of all believers understanding that we see in the scriptures. And um, I also think from from someone who works with the next generation with kids and, and young people, oftentimes, I think it also has unintentionally put the role of discipleship onto the church when I don't think the role of discipleship solely belongs on the church, I think it's primarily on the family 
and then the church equipping the family to do that discipleship. But when you get a boom of people, and this is why I don't think we're getting into all other thoughts, but this is why I think the churches get to a certain size, get bigger than I think they ever really should have been, um, or is even manageable for one pastor or even group of pastors to oversee. So yeah, I think the professionalization of ministry has a lot to do with how people try to give over spiritual practices to the church, even to abdicate their own role. But back to what you said, because you shared this at the beginning of this role of the monastic or the church fathers looking at themselves as the greatest of all sinners, kind of that Pauline view of self. Why, why do you think that that view of self causes them into these different spiritual practices or into the desert or into this, as opposed to what we might look at them and go, wow, they're so spiritual and holy and righteous. Yeah. Well, I know personally, one thing that, that I can reflect on is, um, you know, being a good Protestant, you know, we emphasize daily devotions and daily prayer. And I remember as I was in one of my papers, I had to write for my study. I, I talked about how, you know, I will do my daily devotions every morning. I'll be, I'll be sure to pray. And like a good, you know, American Protestant, you know, what do you get out of it? Well, you know, being a part of that always on, always busy culture, mm. generally nothing. <laughs> and so, so the idea there is um, in, in learning about the contemplative solitude kind of lifestyle of the monastics, I, I feel like it has been a challenge, a challenge to me mm. to slow down, to let scripture wash over me instead of just racing through it and checking the box that I completed my devotions and, you know, one day I'll get bonus points in heaven. Yeah. How many times did you read through the Bible? You get a special seat, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. So in regards to that, are there any uh, resources or books that you would recommend for someone who wants to dabble their toe in the water of the monastics and learn something? Um, that you would recommend? I know I didn't prep you for this beforehand, so it might take you a moment to think of a book or something that, that you just, wow, I enjoyed reading this or this helped me think differently about my own spiritual practices. Yeah, well, here's an idea. Just do a Google search on monastery near me. Mm. Okay, because there you go. You could just go visit one. I mean, they'd be more than happy to let you sit in. Typically, not not every monastery is the same. Sure. But a lot of times you can just go sit in on one of their prayer times or just go into their sanctuary and reflect. Maybe you can even just call them up and be like, hey, I have a few questions about it. You know, is there um, anything uh, or do you have time, you know, for me to ask you a few questions about your lifestyle? Um, but of course, I should probably mention that um, that monasteries tend to be either Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic. Yep. And so I, I find it interesting that among um, you know Protestants, there's actually this this kind of almost revival of um, books that have been written on how can we as Protestants borrow or learn from the people uh, learn from the monastics. Um, yeah, and actually, I have a whole shelf full of books that might uh, be helpful for that. But offhand, I'm struggling to remember their names. <laughs> no, hey, uh, I am the worst with remembering names. If it's not in front of me or written down, I may not remember it. Uh, but you, you did mention um, that in some of your time of study, you were even gifted an icon up there of Mark because your name is Mark. And I thought that that was interesting. Um, yes. I don't think they can see it. It's up on your shelf, but I can see it on my bigger screen. Would you like me to point the yes. camera at it? Yeah. Show it off. It there it is. is. Let's see here. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> there it is. In fact, That's... if you look closely, I even left the notes on it from the nun because they left this for me in my room when I visited there once. And they said, this is kind of like your namesake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I would greatly be interested if anyone listening ends up taking you up on that. That is an very, uh, an idea that I hadn't thought of. I mean, I know that there's some around, even around where I am. Um, but I, 
I would rather go watch than sit down to read a book about it. Right. Like I'd, I'd rather go participate and, and get the sights and the smells and the sounds um, and, and have a real conversation with someone that, that sounds like a very interesting thing. And you might've just convinced me to go do that at some point for myself. So in, in regards to all of this though, I, I would love to talk a little bit about how you're applying some of this thought process of evangelism, missional thinking into the church vitality of the church you're at now, which is cup EPC. Um, and actually side note, the former pastor of cup, Scott Graham was my advisor through the ordination process. So I know Scott fairly well, um, was sad to see him, uh, move on uh, to another presbytery cause we don't get to see each other, but that's okay. So talking through the history of redemption, you're in the, you just started a four part series looking at the history of redemption, the Missio Dei, the mission of God. Talk a little bit about why you felt that was a good series to head into right after Resurrection Sunday and and where your kind of hope and desire is as you walk through this series. Yeah, and I, I love what uh, Christopher Wright says when it talks about the church doesn't have a mission. The mission God has a church for his mission. Mm. And so the idea being is that we as believers are called to join in God in his mission, which is redeeming all things from the fall of mankind that we see in Genesis three. And so that process is really a, a three-part process, you know, looking at the history of redemption. First, creation. Um, what was creation? How do we understand it today? Because now we know that, uh, you know, something happened, that things aren't the way it ought to be. And then leading out of Easter, we understand that, you know, the, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that, you know, the possibly the, the pinnacle of redemption, you know, when Christ paid the atonement uh, for our sins. And then we do all this looking forward to the great consummation at the end of time, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to our own resurrection that we read about in First uh, Thessalonians. Yeah. And the interest, one of the interesting things that I really appreciate about your sermon from this past week was you took time to also teach, not just preach. And you started talking about Gnosticism and how Gnosticism today is actually probably more prevalent, but people don't even know that it's Gnosticism. So can you, can you share a little bit about how you see Gnosticism present today? Maybe a definition for those listening that may not know what we're talking about and to how that impacts our view of the Great Commission even. Yeah, so we understand that, that Gnosticism borrows a lot from Greek philosophy, which is essentially Plato. You know, the idea of there's the world of being, a world where everything is perfect. Meanwhile, we're down here in the world of becoming, and the goal is to become more and more like the world of, of being. And so then when you pull that over into Christianity, what that turns into is that the, the Gnostics would say that the fall has created such a fallenness that creation is no longer good, which disagrees with, with the scriptures. But then in, in so doing, what that turns into is that the spiritual realm, that's the good realm, and then anything of this realm is the not good. And so one day, you know, we'll get the chance to go to the world of being uh, from the world of becoming. And yet, I think so much of that is antithetical to the gospel. We believe in a God of redemption, not a, a God of escape. Well, yeah, and, and this view of I just can't wait to leave earth to get to heaven um, mm -hmm. is is a very specific view that I think has been furthered by things like media. Even look at cartoons. I know cartoons maybe aren't where we get our theology, hopefully, but some people look at that like Tom and Jerry esque, like earth. I'm just going to float up to heaven. The stairway is going to appear out of the sky. And, and, and it's this escape of the, the earth bad. And, and therefore I don't even have to care about the earth. I can just be so heavenly minded. I think it's easy to fall into that trap when we're surrounded by death and pain and suffering, but how much even more beautiful and glorious is it that we have a God that isn't just going to move us away from that, but he's going to take that brokenness and that pain and redeem it quite literally into something beautiful. 
that's a very different picture than the Sunday school picture. I think we get of, of God and yeah, I, I'm intrigued to hear how the rest of that sermon series goes. You, you were in, uh, what was it? Genesis and, and, and Romans, you brought yeah, those Romans two together. Yep. Yeah. Which I thought was a very smart way of, of connecting, um, the all creation is groaning. Well, why would creation be groaning if it's not going to be redeemed? That makes no sense, right? So very, very well done. And any other, were there any thoughts from the sermon that you you wish you could have gone down more, but because of the time frame, uh, <laughs> it had to hit the cutting room floor, so to speak? Well, I wouldn't say the cutting room floor, but the idea of the Imago Day, I think is so powerful um, in our culture today. You know, the idea that we are created in the image of God, but even more so, the people that we know, the people that we interact, they are created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God means that there is, is a right to dignity. We need to treat them as creations of God, not just uh, people that are there to help us get what we want or to get our own way, people that we can malign on social media. Um, so many ways that we as, as Christians can stumble into treating others as something other than fellow creations of Almighty God. Yeah, it, it takes a whole different perspective when you start viewing everyone through that lens, right? And everything through that lens, not just how we approach other people, but yes, there's a special creation in the image of God, but yet all of creation has been created by God. And I think we're very quick to uh, toss that aside uh, for political reasons, sometimes more so than theological. I think we, we align with a political party and therefore we take that perspective of the world around us and, and being good stewards of the mandate given to Adam and Eve that we're still living into. Yeah, uh, those are some good thoughts. So I also want to put it out there for those of you watching. If you do have any questions, feel free to throw them down in the chat live. Part of what I love to do is be able to answer some of your questions. It can be, be about anything, be about Presbyterianism. It can be about anything we've mentioned or nothing we've mentioned. It could be about a book that you see behind Mark there or whatever else uh, as we're just hanging out, having a conversation. Uh, I also wrote down, uh, and you mentioned it a little bit before about uh, Philip Jenkins, but are there any other books that you've been reading that have been really impactful in your perspective, I know for me, usually when I start reading a book, I, I can't stop telling people about it <laughs> or, or my conversations. I always weave it back in because I'm so excited about what I'm reading. But anything like that that you've been able to dig into before you take study leave to finish your uh, doctoral thesis next week? Yeah. So I would say in, in understanding where Christianity is today, um, both in the U.S. as around the world, I think the next Christendom is one that uh, is probably the best one I've seen for that. But I will add in there that uh, Tom Rayner has some great blog posts, but also there's some good research firms, uh, Lifeway Research as well as Barner Research, that the thing I appreciate about those both of those firms is that they will give you research that will help you understand things that you might be seeing anecdotally. Good. Yeah. To give you some concrete, um, actual evidence based on what you might've already felt. That's good. Yeah. I've, I've, I've appreciated Lifeway research very much because I think that some of the things they've done have helped us to go, Oh, that's right. We are concerned about biblical literacy and here are the actual numbers to back that up. Right. Stuff mm -hmm. like that is super helpful. Cool. One of the things that I'm reading, well, I just opened, I just got it yesterday. Um, is Biblical Theology, a Canonical, Thematic, and Ethical Approach. And it's a, a book about this thick where it basically breaks down every book of the Bible. Um, it's I'm part of the Crossway book review program, so they send me a book that I get to review. So I'm going to read through that one. I'm excited to dig into that devotionally more so than study-wise. Um, but that's one that I'm, I haven't quite started yet, but it, I read the intro. So I'm, I'm a few pages in. Well, I hope you enjoy it. I can barely pronounce it. No. Yeah. I had to pull open the title and read it. So I didn't mess it up <laughs> <laughs> as, as things are, are going here. Good. So in, in regards to your studies and some of the things that you've been doing, what is one of the things that you've just so enjoyed about 
being part of or being called to uh, ministry that guides and leads the people of God towards this great commission. What, are, what Do you have any stories or any thoughts that stick out in your mind as, man, this was just an awesome God moment where the people of God came together and lived out the great commission in beautiful ways. I think testimonies and stories are, are so needed more so in the church than ever before, because it's so easy to be feeling like there's just a wall of darkness outside that just keeps crushing in on the church. But reality is the church is victorious through Jesus Christ. Um, any, any of those things that come to mind over the, the years of ministry that you've been in or even prior to pastoral ministry? Yeah, I, I would say one of the uh, the ones that come to mind right away would be when I had gotten to my previous transitional pastorate. There was a lady that um, actually ran a, a business in town that had just started attending the church around the time I got there. And so she was a part of the church for, I don't know, probably a couple of months. And then one Sunday, suddenly she, she wasn't at church that day. Mm. And I, I think it was uh, during the, uh, the prayer request time. You know, a lot of churches will have time during the, the service where they'll take praises and requests. And it was, I think, during that time that we suddenly learned about what had happened, which was that her son, who was about in his 30s, had just suddenly dropped dead. Oh. Wow. Yeah. And so after church that day, one of the other elders and I went over to visit her as well as to see the widow. In fact, one of the saddest parts of the story was that it was only within the previous year that actually the pastor that I was taking over for had just married this couple. Oh, wow. This guy was a newlywed in his 30s, younger than I am today, and just dropped dead. Wow. And yet, in the middle of all that, um, the church just rallied around this family, um, supported them in any way that we could. Um, I ended up doing the funeral, um, which was probably one of the toughest funerals you can do. Mm. And yet, it was a couple of weeks after that, that another family member asked to talk with me. And I'll never forget that he walked in my office and first thing he said was what had happened uh, to his family member really made him think through about his own destiny, about his own life. And so he asked me if I would baptize him so that one day he would go to heaven. And it was in that moment that I had the privilege to share with him and to remind him that there's actually something that, that should happen first in this conversation. <laughs> and and yeah. you, exactly, you know right where I'm going. Yeah. And so it was in my office, uh, just, you know, sitting next to each other where I had a chance to share with him the way to salvation, what you have to do. And so he prayed to receive Christ into uh, his life. And then I had the privilege to baptize him. And then a short time later, he joined the church as a church member. Amen. Amen. That's well, that, that's a testament to uh, that the gospel can be proclaimed at funerals and in the way that we care for people in their, their challenges and, and difficulties. And that, that is a mark of vitality when a church is ready and willing and, and preloaded their yes to serve and love those in their congregation. That's what we see in Acts chapter two, that they had nothing, they had everything in common, no lack. Why? Because they were so desperately caring for one another. That's a, that's a beautiful story. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. It reminds me of how often I think we, we see church as a thing to go to and just consume versus a place to be a community. And, mm -hmm. and this is why I, I think that it's more important than ever, if you're listening or watching, uh, to be involved in a local church, to find a local church that not only will love you, but that you can love and serve the people there because it's not just about you going to get it's you going to, to serve our Romans 12, one, our, our lives are these living sacrifices um, that we kind of present holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual act of worship. So beautiful. That's awesome. Well, as we're hanging out here, any other, other thoughts or things that you've really enjoyed? Um, I know I heard you mention briefly in your sermon that you'd previously had a podcast 
uh, with a friend of yours. I don't know what that was in reference to, um, but I'm always intrigued. Um, would love to, to hear what that was like or, or what else you have going on besides uh, the, this uh, redemption series that you're wa- working through. Oh, I, I know what you're referring to. No, actually, I had nothing to do with that podcast. I oh. just had to listen to a friend of mine that had a podcast. There you go. I was like, oh, Mark has a podcast. I need to listen to that. So, okay. Well, if you had a podcast, I would listen to it. It's, it's, and I have a podcast. If people don't know and you're here, this is a podcast. Welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Hit that like button, please. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's that's what I was referencing. I wasn't quite sure. Um, I'm sure the people in the in your congregation had more understanding of that. So in as we move, um, I, I've got a, I got another question, and I know that you have strong feelings about this, and I didn't prep you before, but oh boy, <laughs> Mark, why why the Westminster Confession of Faith? Why should we look at that as a helpful and valid document? to helping us understand the scriptures and not necessarily um, or I don't want to pit it against other confessions, but why is that the one for us in the EPC that we look at and go, okay, this is the sole subordinate standard um, under scripture. Quite simply, it describes what we believe. And I would say it describes what scripture teaches, but I love how the Westminster confession of faith has now been passed down for over 400 years. And in those 400 years, I mean, think of how many things that have changed. And yet here we are 400 years later, getting the opportunity to look at scripture through the lenses of the Puritans, the Westminster divines, and to grow in our faith as we uphold the Westminster as our understanding of scripture. Yeah. And so it gives us a, a way when someone asks a question, what do we believe? We can go back to both the larger shorter catechism, but the, the confession itself as a means of better explaining what, what we say we believe about certain aspects of the faith. Yeah. And I appreciate how here in the EPC, we have a written understandable confession. You know, there's, there's such a, um, kind of a, a view of just going with the lowest common denominator in faith anymore. And that leaves so many things out there that become question marks in terms of, you know, what does this person or this church believe about, you know, various things? Well, this is it. This is how we understand it as confessionally reformed Presbyterians. Yeah. And, and so if you're interested in what we believe, you could go and read that, or you can even better, uh, I would encourage you to start with the catechisms. If you're unfamiliar, it's a very helpful way of questions and answers with scripture references. I would go right to the larger. Um, don't be fooled. Don't go to the shorter. The shorter is good, but the larger, larger has a little bit more meat on the bones, uh, so to speak. Yeah. I, as one, I went to seminary and this is, this is partly why my seminary education, I look back on and I wish I had done a different route, but God had a plan um, and I'll trust that. I mean, the Westminster Confession was just one of the book of confessions that we looked at in the PCUSA. And in fact, I would say we spent very little time talking about any of the confessions. And I've found so much uh, resource and help for me when I'm struggling or wondering that it's a great tool. Now, you mentioned a term that some people may not understand. You said the Westminster divines. Do we believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith is divinely inspired? You can't possibly mean that. (laughs) Okay, I'm clipping that out. I'm going to send that. Send that to your elders. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, the, the phrase that we use is the sole subordinate standard for scripture. And so what we understand is that the scriptures were divinely inspired in the original text, which is actually almost exactly the way the Westminster describes them. Mm-hmm. And so whereas the scriptures are divinely inspired, the Westminster is an explanation of how we understand the scriptures. You know, when you go and read through the Bible and you try to think about what we know or what we believe 
about salvation or about the mm-hmm. Trinity um, or simply about God <laughs> or Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, the, the teachings about those subjects are in various places in the scripture. And so how do we bring those together? How do we understand what the whole of scripture teaches us about various doctrines of the faith? So how would one go about incorporating some of the Westminster Confession of Faith into their worship practices? I was really intrigued when this past Sunday, part of your liturgy had the Westminster Confession of Faith as part of what you read together. Uh, Maybe a little bit why you do that and, and how you found that, how you figured that strategy out to put that before the folks in your congregation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I gotta admit, uh, you know, being a transitional pastor, um, it, it took a lot of thought and intentionality in terms of how do we incorporate that within scripture? And so, um, I mean, within the, the service. And so what I ended up doing was just simply accepting it as is from the previous pastor. Hmm. Sometimes that's good. Yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> well, and, and that's a joke I don't, if no one caught that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just going with what it is. <laughs> yeah, but but I will say that that's one thing that really has impressed me um, mm-hmm. in, in coming here is that, you know, inheriting this tradition of of looking at and declaring what we believe each Sunday uh, through the Westminster. I, I've been very impressed by the fact that um, the person that I uh, I took over for had done that, had incorporated that within mm-hmm. the service. Mm-hmm. Now have has that been incorporated at all? Is there any catechism that your church does or catechesis that your church does with the younger generation? Or is it solely right now kind of focused in on as part of the worship of the of the Lord's Day? Yeah, so I guess two answers for that. Um, we have a portion of our service where we call it the affirmation of faith. So mm. we can have the, the um, Apostles' Creed. At times you can have the Nicene Creed. Um, as you'd noticed, we did the Westminster Confession of Faith this past Sunday. Um, this next Sunday, we'll have a part of one of the catechisms. I think it's the shorter catechism. Or no, actually, it's the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, there you go. And nice. then also, yeah, and then also in our youth Sunday school class, they are currently going through, I believe it's the shorter catechism. Good. And and again, uh, we did, our church did the New City Catechism, which was a hybrid of the Westminster and the Heidelberg together. Um, we did that throughout COVID because we were trying to find a way to, to teach. But I think that working those into your spiritual practices as a church is, it, church is very important because, like you said, if all you do is the um, Apostles' Creed, while that's great, there's so much more depth and it doesn't go very deep into any one subject. It just has kind of the 30,000 foot view of what we believe, whereas Westminster is going to be more boots on the ground. Here's what we believe about creation. Here's what we believe about God. Here's what we believe about the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. Um, And, you know, going to that, I think it's also important to make sure that our preaching is not just biblical and practical, but that it's also theological. I mean, you know, thinking of the importance of the confessions and the catechisms, you know, that teaches us about what we understand about God from the various scriptures that teach us on the uh, different topics. But, you know, if we simply look at one section of scripture each Sunday, it might only talk about a certain aspect of a major doctrine of the faith. And so it's important to ensure that our preaching also talks about theology in terms of how we understand God so that we are grounding our people in the scripture in a way that they understand the whole of scripture, not just what this one little single passage of scripture says about something. Yeah. And it can be very easy to, to micro apply scripture to people. And so they come with all these little applications and miss the, the story of redemption and hence why you're walking through the history of redemption, right? Um, so switching channels here real quick, um, just as, as a thought, besides hanging out with monks and monasteries, what else do you enjoy to do uh, to rest, recharge? What, what are things that you found for yourself that are 
enjoyable. They don't even necessarily have to be spiritual practices, but just things that you enjoy to do, whether it be you and your wife or you alone or, or with friends, what, what are some of the stuff that you enjoy to do kind of proving to people that pastors are real people too? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, being a, a bit of a nerd, I love to stay inside and just do some reading yes. in a, a nice climate controlled environment. And yet I, I find out that, um, you, you get a different voice in your life when you get married. And so my wife has been wonderful to constantly challenge me to leave my delightfully climate controlled inside space for reading and to get outdoors and to get into nature. Mm, good. That's yeah. It, as long as you do tick checks after long hikes, you should be fine. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that I've, I'm, I'm still my mission at some point, um, is to be able to take my family camping. I was a camping kid growing up, my wife, not so much. So one day I might be able to take my girls all camping. Maybe my wife will stay home. I don't know. We'll find out, but <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to push on, on that, on that regard. Cause I also uh, value my sleep and I know that it's not the best, best sleep to sleep out under the stars, but mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, that that's that's good. I'm glad you get outside some. Um, unfortunately, here today, I have to go stand outside and coach lacrosse later, and it's 40 degrees when it was 80 last week. So that's not going to be so enjoyable. But welcome to Western Pennsylvania. It's, You'll enjoy summer more when it gets here. <laughs> if it if it's an if at this point, it's an if. Who knows? Well, Mark, I appreciate you so much for stopping in. Sorry for the technical difficulties on the front end. Who knows what was going on with that, but God does. That's that's where I'm going to land on. Um, so again, he's mentioned some books that you guys can check out. I'll link some of those down below after. Uh, any closing thoughts, something that you uh, would love to share? doesn't have to be about anything um, or something that I had said we'd talk about that I forgot and didn't write down. Uh, any thoughts as we get ready to wrap up here? Yeah, I think one encouragement for people, which is simply, you know, being raised in the church. I'll never forget uh, sitting in evangelism class in seminary, and they taught us the bridge illustration, which I think is inner varsity. Yeah, the, inner varsity. I think it yeah. is. I think you're right. Yeah. And I remember sitting in that class and feeling so frustrated that even though I was in church for the last 20 years of my life, basically as long as I could remember, I had to go to a master's program, a master's of divinity in order to learn how to share my faith. Mm. I mean, that should not have happened. And so I, I feel like evangelism can be something that we love to talk about and maybe verbally affirm. But the question is always like, are we actually doing it? And so I'd encourage people to perhaps just prayerfully um, look inward and see how they are being a part of God's mission of redemption, to be a part of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you want to learn more about that, go watch a previous episode where I had Sean Brubaker on, who has just finished his doctorate on evangelism. We had an awesome conversation about how you can do that as a church. And I think for those who are here, um, I'll give you the the very short abbreviated version of it. And it simply is start with relationships that you're praying over. That That's, I think, a great place for everyone to start when you're thinking about evangelism. Um, and there's to, to hint at something that's coming up down the road on my channel, I'm going to be interviewing pretty soon. Um, somebody who started a project called the loved Bible project that its heart is all about evangelism. And I can't wait to share that with you guys. So be tuned for that because there's a way that you can be working your devotional life to actually be evangelistic. That's my tease. That'll be coming early May. Um, and I'm excited for that conversation because it's something that I'm trying to do for my own children in my own discipleship of them, which is, a crazy challenge in its own right. So, well, Mark, thanks so much for coming. This was a great conversation. I really enjoy. I get to actually hang out with you here pretty soon. We got Presbytery coming up in 
is it a two weeks two weeks uh, uh two or three weeks i have to two put up with my big mouth again oh uh, yeah i guess so it's closer <laughs> for you though because we're going to ohio for uh presbytery so at least it's a graystone i think so we'll be hanging out there do be in prayer for mark as he continues to preach through the uh, history of redemption and if you want to see the sermon that he preached this past sunday link is down in the description below i highly encourage he did a great job and you get to hear the story of his first date with his wife that's as much as i'm going to tell you so that he can tell that story <laughs> in the sermon um, Mark, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate you for being here. Remember, faithfulness is pursued together. Go out and be salt and light in every area. Love you all. Catch you later. Peace. Hey, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I hope and pray this has been an encouragement to you. If you would please consider sharing this with someone who needs to hear it or leaving a rating on whatever app you're listening on, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Catch you on the next one. People think that there's another gospel. They think they can improve upon the gospel. They think they can edit the gospel. They think that they can change the gospel and move to another gospel. But there is no other gospel. This is Pastor Talk Radio.